welcome to the Real Estate Raw Show, hosted by Joe Mendoza. Hi guys, Joe Mendoza here in sunny San Diego. Welcome to my show today, ladies and gentlemen. We have an exciting guest from the Chicago area. He's killing it. Wait till you hear his story. Pretty incredible. Guys, he runs a huge RIA. He owns his own jet. He's bought, fixed, and flipped. He has so much experience from being an agent, being a fix and flipper, owning lots of property, and now holding. All right, guys, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Andrew Holmes, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad you're here. Thanks for taking time out of your day. So, Andrew, tell our audience really quickly a little bit about your story, your backstory from the beginning to where you are today. So just kind of a synopsis, got in real estate about at uh, 19, uh, 20 years old when I was in college, uh, took the money that uh, I was supposed to use for college books, ended up getting a real estate license. Goal I always had was that I wanted to be a real estate investor. Um, clearly, as I got in real estate, uh, that was a struggle for a few years. I was kind of in a small town and ended up uh, not finishing college. It was kind of one of those things. Um, and uh, sold real estate till the age of uh, about 32. My goal was to start investing in 19. I don't know what happened there for a few years. I think I became uh, too involved with selling real estate at 32, which is 2008, January of 2008, is when I bought the first investment property I ever owned. That was the first fix and flip in 2008. So 2008, I did 10 closed flips uh, that year, I bought 17 houses. So to have 10 closed, I needed a bigger inventory, obviously, to get those many closed. 2009, I did 30 closed transactions for flips, completely quit selling real estate. 2010, I did 60 closed that year. I think I bought 94 properties or something like that. Um, now, some of them had pendings that were obviously moved over into January or so, but about 60 closed for that year. And then um, 2011, I started buying rental properties. And so uh, what had happened was 2008, my average profit per flip was about 28,500. 2009, average profit per flip had come down to about 18 to 19,000. By 2010, it had come down to 11,000 per deal. So I was doing more deals, yet my profit was going in the opposite direction, which obviously I was so busy being busy that I didn't realize my bottom line, what was going on. Um, and then 2011 is when um, I was frustrated. The reason I quit selling real estate was it did, I did very, very well by extremely well in terms of sales of real estate. The problem was at the end of the year, I would always get depressed and I'd feel very depressed from October through December because I was like, oh my God, I can't believe next year I have to be excited and put all this work again. And I really didn't have any assets to show for it. Um, and that was the reason why I wanted to start doing flips, which I thought would be investing, and then realized it was just trading. I was just, I was more frustrated doing flips than I was selling real estate. You and were then, more frustrated. I was way more frustrated doing flips than I was selling real estate, man. Every time I'm in Chicago, uh, every time it would rain a lot or every time we would have a winter storm, I'd be, I mean, I couldn't sleep for days on end, wow. um, you know, because commissions were much better than 
doing flips because now your listing being flooded is one thing, your own properties you have imagined it's 10 below outside and you have 10, 12 flips ready, vacant properties sitting on the market. You know, talk about frozen pipes, talk about the stress. It, it's a little, little bit different level of stress. So. As an agent, what was the most amount of homes you sold as an agent? As an agent, uh, about 80, 81, 82, something like that. So very high production. Yeah, I did pretty good. I mean, and I followed a pretty lean model where I had uh, um, and one assistant and me, zero advertising budget. And all every single listing I got was through cold calling. I mean, I did FISBOs, expired listings, canceled listings. That's it. I mean, I didn't do anything else. I didn't spend a dime in advertising. You didn't have like 20 agents on your team, did you? No. I, and I did out of the 82 um, 78 of them for people who are in real estate were seller controlled sales. So, wow. Good for you. Yeah. Good for you. And then when you pivoted to being a fix and flipper, right. how easy or hard was that to pivot to be a fix and flipper? You know, for me, because of kind of the prior training, um, you know, as you know, uh, my real estate training coach was, um, Mike Ferry, right? Tom Ferry's right. son. Uh, I mean, Tom Ferry's dad, sorry. Right. Um, and uh, so I was trained in a very, very regimented style, which was keeping track of my numbers, selling properties only in the median price range. All the things I did as a real estate agent came in handy because I was following kind of that. I sold the mid-market properties. I never sold very expensive ones. I didn't go to crazy areas. So I knew where the turnover was the highest. That's where I sold. And the principles he had taught me is like, you want to be a great real estate agent, you prospect in the afternoon, you go look at tons of houses. So you look at inventory. And that's exactly what I followed for flipping, which is before I bought my first flip starting in October of the year prior, which is 2007, I started looking at every single property that was messed up, basically REO property, or that was a property that needed rehab. And then I would go look at every property where I intended to sell the property. So all the pendings, all the uh, listings that had sold for the last two years. I called the real estate agents. I did everything possible. So I knew the inventory like the back of my hand in about two or three towns. So then I knew what product I had to turn and what the pricing would be. And that is what my strength was, is I had no rehabbing experience, zero rehabbing experience. So. And then pivoting from fix and flipper to buy and hold, what was kind of your mindset there? Why did you pivot? The biggest reason was, man, I had, I really didn't have any assets, right? If you asked me, um, if you walked to my office after I'd been selling real estate for all this time, um, how much asset base do you have? I really didn't have any. I mean, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I would have gotten very mad because um, I didn't have much of an asset base. One thing, fortunately, I never did, even when times were really good in real estate, I didn't buy big cars. I didn't, I was pretty, very lean. All the agents were jet skis, this, that, all the stuff that we know was going on 2005, six, seven, and eight. I fortunately was whatever money I had, I did save that at least, but I had no assets that would produce income. Same thing happened with flips. So then my goal with rentals was one thing. I'm going to buy a property. I'm going to rehab it. I'm going to refinance it. So when I buy a property, it's going to have a minimum uh, of 30, 35% equity. That was my goal. It had to have $400 cash flow, and I was going to use four or $500 extra that came in to pay off 
my rentals. So my goal was three or four rentals, have them all paid off. That was my whole initial goal uh, when I kind of started doing rentals because I wanted security. I was just scared as an agent that tomorrow something would happen and I couldn't sell real estate. What am I going to do? Same thing. I mean, I was more scared with flips because now you have this huge liability you take on. Now you got an interesting formula. You shared that with me the other day. Mm -hmm. Do you mind sharing the uh, with, to the audience about your formula, the two five seven? So today we call that two five seven, which is two years, a minimum of five properties, and have them paid off in seven years, right? And the idea being like, if you have one of anything, it's a hobby. If you have two houses, it's a pain, right? Once you get to a scale of five, it becomes a business. Meaning, if you have five rentals, let's say one of them, you can have a bad tenant, right? You can't really, uh, you can do screening, you can do everything, but you, that can happen. One air conditioning can fail. So if you have five, what it does is it carries the burden whenever something is not performing. And then on an average rental property, net-net, after all expenses, principal, PITI, and management, we have about 450 to 550 cash flow, 500 being average. So you take the $500, from five properties. So that's about $2,500, depending on if it's a two flat, it's gonna be a little bit more. If it's three flats, it's gonna be a little bit more. You take that $2,500 and you attack the, um, the debt on property number one. So that property number one gets paid off as quickly as possible. It takes about two, two and a half years uh, in the price range we buy. Then you go from property number one to property number two. Uh, that gets paid off about 19 months to 18 months, depending on how much debt you have and so on and so forth. So my goal initially was to be debt-free on four or five properties because I felt if I at least had four or $5,000 coming in a month and I had free and clear properties, at least I would have something to kind of lean on. And uh, that was kind of the start of this whole thing. Now, at that time, five properties was like, I was giddy. I mean, I remember driving around with my business partner, the guy who's my business partner now, and one day we're like, like two kids. I'm like, dude, imagine you'll have two or three houses paid off. I'll have two or three houses paid off. I mean, we thought we would be like in hog heaven at that time because I just didn't know what was possible. So that concept, what we have done is developed pods of 257, 257, 257, 257, 257. So we're close to about 250, 260 single family, two flats and or four flats at this point. Now, West Coast, we don't talk in flats so much. What's a flat? Right. <laughs> flat is like a two unit or a three unit or a four unit. We call it in Chicago, we call it a two flat, three flat, four flat. So, Got it. Thanks know. for clar so, clarifying that for yeah. my audience. <laughs> yeah, so two unit building or a three unit building or a four unit building. I stay below five units. Uh, I don't go into uh, bigger buildings because uh, at least in our market, most of the country, the smaller properties are much more profitable. So what I had noticed was going back to 257 that most people, most landlords and a lot of what I did with flipping, what I did with rentals was everything that I saw people do during all the way from say 99 to 2007, everything that all my clients did, I do exactly the opposite, right? They lived on their income, they lived on their rental money, they relied on it. I have since 2011 till today with all the properties that we own, I've never pulled out one penny for my personal use. All the toys, all the stuff that I buy is from earned income and that's not from investment income. All the investment income goes back 
to paying off the properties. Because what my belief is this, that in real estate, if you take care of real estate for the first five years, real estate will take care of you for the rest of your life. But those first five years are your base. That's where, um, and that's kind of what I learned as a real estate agent also, that you have to be able to build a base. You don't become a millionaire overnight. That only happens on TV, you know? And people who build wealth, you have to build a foundation. And just because I have four, five, 6,000 coming in a month, if I go use it for personal use, I'm never gonna build a big enough kind of a empire or foundation that I can really have true wealth, so. Now, what do you say to somebody who's has a regular day job, nine to five, mm -hmm. they're barely living paycheck to paycheck, but they've got this dream to go ahead and implement your formula. How would you go about implementing your formula? So number one, I mean, we have a ton of people, ton of, there are few people. So to give you some numbers, right, uh, in Chicago, I started an organization called Chicago Real Estate Investors Association um, and uh, chicagoria.org. And there we have about 10,000 plus members at this point. We started about four years ago, four and a half years ago. And out of that, there's a group of about 950 people that I work with. Most of them, we categorize them as busy professionals, meaning they may be real estate agents, attorneys, doctors, engineers, whatever. They have a full-time job. They're plumbers and so on and so forth. They keep their full-time job, and which is my belief is, if you want to be a multimillionaire, you got to keep your full-time job. You cannot quit that. If you quit that, the, and the chances of you, you becoming a successful entrepreneurs are 10 or 15,000 to one, because that's your stable income. And then you start building rental properties on the side. You don't have to have a lot of income. Like this is a, the other issue. My, the way I invested in the first rental was, I was doing flips. The way I started with flips was I went to Chase Bank, got a home equity line, $50,000 line. And uh, if you guys remember 2008, they would give you a line and three days later cancel it. So by the time uh, on the home equity, it was three days later, I went to, I'm like, okay, I'm going to encash my line. The 50,000 had gone down to 20, right? Um, so I took that 20,000, took another friend of mine, he had 20 and I told him, I made him a deal he couldn't refuse. And I was like, listen, man, I want to do flips. I've been talking to him a bunch of times and I'm like, I'm willing to put up 20,000. You put up 20,000. We'll use that, go to a commercial hard money lender and borrow money to do a flip. So that was our down payment. And I'll give you 50% of the profits. You don't have to do any work. I'll find the property. I'll rehab it. I'll do all the headaches. I'll sell it. I'll take no commissions and I'll split the profits. He's like, what do I do? I'm like, nothing. I needed him, now I realize, but I considered him a successful person in his own right, and he was busy. So I needed moral support more than anything else. I needed, I mean, and I thought, if he thinks I'm smart, then I must be really smart, right? <laughs> uh, I used him as a crutch, and, <laughs> and the deal was, he's like, what happens if we lose money? I'm like, well, if we lose money, I lose my 20,000 first. So, and I was pretty confident we won't lose money. And as I didn't want to look, look like a fool in front of somebody I respected, right? It was a, now I realize how good a deal it was, but I did that on the first 128 flips I ever did in my life. I made that deal with a lot of people and a lot of people made a lot of returns, but really I used that 20,000 bucks to grow that until today. I've never put in one penny besides that out of pocket. 
It's all been money that was earned in real estate. So how does that relate to people in the audience that say, well, Andrew, I don't have cash. So majority of the people that we have, about nine or 50 people or so that I work with on a regular basis, the average person owns 11 properties in the last four and a half years. So that group of nine or 50 people or so own close to 11,000 properties here in Chicago. And most of them, 95% of them are all in the suburbs. We don't go to the areas in town. So we categorize areas as A, affluent, B, bread and butter, C, areas with some challenge, and D, areas are disasters where there's too many challenges. So D is, it's like, I never wrote down a business plan that I'm going to get shot, mugged, or held up. It's not my business plan. So I just don't go to those areas, right? Some people go to those areas, but I don't believe you have to because there's a, and 95% of this country, you can do this without necessarily money out of pocket. So here's how that works. You have to look at, a lot of people have heard of the Burr strategy, right? We call that strategy 257 because it's a little bit modified. With Burr, a lot of times what happens is as long as people can refinance the property, buy it, rehab it, refinance it, they consider it a good deal. We don't. So the way we consider something a good deal is it has to meet three criteria. Number one, for you to be able to start with nothing and build. For that, you have to have three criteria. And the other um, kind of the criteria I have is because of the real estate that you own, if you retire five years from today, will the bank continue giving you a loan? If the answer is yes, then your investments are good. If the answer is no, then your investments are bad. So the way we look at it is three criteria. Number one is, does the property have equity? So example of that would be is, and I mind you, I'm using properties from the Midwest. So if you take New York, uh, I mean, New York City, you take some parts of Southern California or San Francisco and all that put aside, um, and then Miami, certain parts that are just ridiculously hot property prices don't make sense. That's not 99.9% of the United States. 99.9% of the United States is bread and butter properties. That's just what it is. And that's what we invest in. So in the bread and butter properties, number one rule is we don't ever do a year lease. We only do two to three year leases, right? That's number one rule because we don't want turnover. The other rule is that three criteria. Number one, that the property has to have equity, meaning 25 to 30% equity uh, after rehab. So if I buy a property for 80, I fix it for 20, my carrying cost, other costs are say another 10, my all-in cost is 110. Then the property on a very conservative refi appraisal needs to be about 150 or so 145 so that I can refinance 110 out of it, put long-term debt on it, and I still have a nice 25 to 30% margin. Because if you don't have money where are you going to put money out of pocket? See, my problem was, even though I had done a lot of flips, if I had money stuck in the rentals, I could buy two or three and I'd be done, right? I had no way to grow. So my goal was I have to buy rentals with lots of equity so I can refinance them, have tons of equity. Number two is that it has to have cash flow. For me, the criteria is minimum of $400. Most of the properties I own will have at least 450, 500. And that's the key. You have to learn how to find good quality properties. And even in a market like Chicago, a lot of the markets I've seen, you can find properties. May not be available on the MLS, but you can find properties through auctions, off-market probates, short sales, uh, all kinds of places. There's a ton of 
transactions that take place. So second is equity. And the third one that nobody talks about is DCR, debt coverage ratio. So DCR is net operating income, NOI divided by principal plus interest, right? That the bank wants you to have 1.2 or 1.25. We operate on a minimum of 1.33 debt coverage ratio, meaning, so I'll give you an example of this. So my business partner, Raul, he was a Caterpillar engineer. So he worked in Chicago at the big Caterpillar plant. And as a Caterpillar engineer at the time, he's making 110, 115, something like that, right? They were happy to give him a loans all day long, 2011, 12, 13. Now by 12 or 13, he has 18, 19 properties and he quits that job. Now the question becomes is, how does he support himself, number one? And number two is, will the bank continue to keep giving him uh, loans to build a portfolio without having a job? And that's that test. And so that's how I came up with that number of 1.33 because I was paranoid, right? I couldn't at that time, there were no banks that would give me on a 1099 alone for refi. So what I did was I would partner with somebody. I would again, buy the property with them, rehab the property, get it rented, deal with all the headaches and give them 50% for refinancing it out. Because I didn't, this is mind you, 2011. Things have changed a lot today. It's a lot easier, obviously. 2011, 12 and 13, nobody would give me refis. After 14, they would start. So every property that I did from the beginning, right? I was doing 50-50s. My deal was if I want five properties, I have to do 10. That way I can have, you know, 50% of 10 properties. And that's how I had to build. After 2014, it's gotten easier. Now people, we have so many people that get into investing within a year. They have 10, 15, 20, 30 properties. They build a portfolio like that because a lot of those, that methodology, at that time, I didn't have a science behind it. Today, it's become a science. Love it, love it. Guys, so what he was talking about, in case that went over your head a little bit, if I'm gonna put a dollar investment, I expect 33 cents on top of my dollar I'm getting back. Okay, so you wanna keep it pretty simple in that regard, but it's a lot more complicated in some instances, okay? So you really, really wanna pay attention because some people, they depending where you are, you are, you don't take the right expenses into consideration, which could hurt you as far as like, you know, commercial real estate, they use this thing called timber, okay? Taxes, insurance, maintenance, um, management, reserves, okay? Utilities, reserves, okay? And in single family, I think what he's saying also too, is it's a little less complicated and you don't have to partner up, you don't have to do syndication, anything like that. I think that's a really, really good point that you're making, Andrew. So with that said, you with said- commercial properties, you get a lot of leverage, right? You get a lot of other benefits. With single family properties, you get a lot of other benefits or two, uh, two unit properties, three unit properties that anybody, like even a small, uh, we have so many, so many, so many people that start out with very small amounts. But uh, one thing I don't believe in is, um, I don't typically, typically do seller financing. I don't typically do, um, you know, lease with purchase options, all that. Because what happens is a lot of times people will buy bad quality properties just because they get seller finance, right? To me, I don't care. There's enough, so much money available today, right? In general, in the marketplace, that if you don't have money, you can partner with somebody, right? I've always been of the opinion that you're on an island, man, listen, you know, let, let's share the fish, 
let's not die, you know, so because, oh, I'm, I can't share. And my belief has always been that, that if you share with somebody, for me, I had to partner with people because I didn't have enough finances. I had to partner with people because I couldn't get refinances out, even though I understood the process that I could do all the work. But then I was stuck doing all the work, majority of the 99.9% of the work initially, because it was my dream. It wasn't their goal. But my deal was I'm willing to give them half of it because I can build a business which is way bigger than, you know, than anybody else. So you got to pay a price. Either you're going to pay in terms of a pocketbook or you're going to pay in terms of your hard work that you put in. Got it. Got it. Now, are you teaching your students to deal source via letters, brokers? How are you teaching your students to deal source? Man, we're equal opportunity offenders. I mean, still today, I buy properties from the MLS. We buy auction properties. Uh -huh. uh, like You mean at the sheriff's sale. Uh, we're one of the biggest buyers in Chicago now um, at auctions. Uh, so I help people buy properties there. I buy it for myself um, through a lot of, lot of networking with other wholesalers because they have no idea what they're doing. I mean, they have absolutely no idea. So you can find a lot of properties that way. And then, of course, your bandit signs, you're um, doing some mailings, doing some uh, marketing, pay-per-click. I mean, a few different methods. But 33% um, last year of all the properties I bought came from MLS. 33% came from just networking. I know a lot of agents. So a lot of agents will call us. Um, at this point, and then 33% were approximately from just purely off market by mailers and so on and so forth. Awesome. You know, what I noticed about you, you know, for somebody you said you didn't go to college, you really know your numbers. Why is knowing your numbers really important? You know, I, I think maybe part of it was Mike beating that into my head, right? He used to, I used to hate doing it, but it was number of dials, number of contacts, number of appointments set, numbers of appointments gone on, number of listings taken, number of properties under contract and number of clothes, you know, and you repeat the process yeah. over again. And what I realized was that numbers is what builds your business. It's a duplicatable and predictable business. Uh, and I meet a lot of real estate investors. They're like, well, how many deals did you do last year? Man, I did a hundred deals. Okay, good. How many properties did you buy last year? Well, what do you mean? Well, to do a hundred deals, you can't buy a hundred properties. You got to buy 150 properties to be able to close 100 deals, right? And I'm one of those people that if you tell me, hey, listen, I have a vineyard, I want to see the vineyard, right? I'm just not going to, you know, you have better have a big as a seller somewhere and you better have a lot of, you know, grapes growing somewhere. Because I noticed a lot of times people say a lot of things, but there is really, all I have to do is ask them a few benchmarks. And boom, I know whether what they're saying makes sense or not. And real estate or running a business is nothing but numbers, right? And um, it's, I just feel it's like numbers. If you understand the numbers over time, um, you can beat almost all the odds if you understand numbers. Like same exact thing with COVID right now, as we're hopefully come out of it gradually, it's going to take time. It's a challenge, right? And a lot of people called me as soon as this whole thing started. They're like, are you worried? I'm like, not really. They're like, well, why not? I'm like, listen, man, last six, seven years, I've never taken a penny out of my rentals ever. All the money has gone back. We've paid off a ton of properties. So if I get in trouble, 99.9% .9 of the United States and the world is gone, then we really don't have that much to worry about. And I've had the, that simple philosophy that if you give it some time, 
you make yourself as bulletproof as humanly possible by having 30, 40, 50, 60% equity in your property and massive cash flows. I mean, I think the debt service, like if you look at loan to value ratio today, we're at 45% on all the properties across the board, right? Uh, so it gives you a pretty good feeling that even though what's going on is crazy, but each year as the years go by, we become more and more and more and more secure. For most people who start making money, what they do is they do opposite. They used to live on 50,000. Now they get used to living on 100,000. Then they get used to living on 200,000. If you make 50, you spend 50, it's called broke. If you make 100, spend 100, it's called broke, right? Um, it's not spelled any differently just because you made 100 grand. And that's my belief is that, um, that I wanted very simple. My first goal was to have 3,000 a month in cash flow. Then it was to have 6,000 a month in cash flow. Then it was, well, how about 20 sounds good. Then it was, well, 50 would be really good. You know, now it's like 100 is good every month without, without doing anything. That's just purely from cash flow. So it happens to be me and my business partner. So between the two of us, we have to have 200,000 coming in every single month without anything else. So love it. Love it. Now, if you don't mind, you know, you're a very transparent gentleman. I lo love that. There's people struggling, right? Maybe even worse when this coronavirus, you know, gets um, impacts their businesses, their profession, they get furloughed, what have you. And, and mindset is getting screwed up. Now, you were at one point, you were talking about, you know, you go into a seminar and you, you didn't even have a room or something like that. Tell us when you were kind of down and out, what kind of helped you pull out of that? You know, it's kind of weird. And I don't know why my brain used to work like that. I, I'll never forget this. I used to be, I think I was telling you about the Pittsburgh um, thing. I went to the first real estate seminar, sales seminar I ever went to was actually Mike's seminar. And um, I don't, I think I, it took me two or three credit cards to buy the $300 ticket at the time. I still owed them 50 bucks. I went there and I was so embarrassed about the whole thing. And I couldn't get a hotel room. So I slept in my car, took a shower at the gym in the morning. And then again, he said that professional people wear a suit. So I showed up in a suit, right? I changed the shirt because I couldn't afford three different suits. So, um, you know, it's just like, I didn't, I don't know, man, I had no choice. And I remember at that time, uh, Mike talking about a Rolls Royce and I found out they had a Rolls Royce dealership um, in Pittsburgh at the time. I had never seen a Rolls Royce dealership in my life. I didn't, and I got there before it closed. And I still will never forget this. I used to have this beat up Mustang, paint was faded off. I didn't have the courage to go in the parking lot. So I kind of parked down the, down the ways, downtown Pittsburgh, and I, would, I wouldn't even get on that side of the street. I'm walking back and forth and I'm like, man, one day, one day, one day. And I, I must have, I don't know, uh, you know, driven by that thing a hundred times after that uh, because, and that I was just kind of one of those people who uh, I used to go look at stupid houses, like big ass houses, I'd go drive by them, right? I mean, uh, you know, all the quote unquote, you have to kind of have your goals. And, you know, I remember this is a long time ago, um, one time Mike said, hey, you know, you have to have a check, right? So I printed out this check. I wrote it myself a million bucks and I put it in my pocket. 
right? I don't know how many times I did that, never made a million bucks at that time, right? And it took me a while, but for some reason, I thought it was possible, right? It was a crazy, crazy, crazy idea. And, uh, you know, <laughs> as obnoxious as it sounds, um, year and a half ago, I went and bought a Rolls, right? It's an obnoxious thing to do. I'm, uh, you know, I'm admitting it 100%, but uh, Congratulations. that was my dream, right? That was my goal, right? I wanted to buy a plane. I mean, it was, it's like, I don't know. I, I really, my belief has always been is why not me? Why someone else? Am I not good enough? Am I not, don't I deserve it? Don't your kids deserve it? And it's, that's just been always my way of thinking is that I know it's possible and somehow I got to figure it out. That's awesome. Now, I, I believe that a lot of successful people probably had the toughest setbacks or hardest upbringing. That's what made them really tenacious. Did you have anything even before that? I mean, you know, by most standards, you would actually, I grew up in a pretty, uh, by any standard, I grew up in a well-to-do house. My dad was an orthopedic surgeon. My mom was an OBGYN gynecologist. But even at that time, so I grew up in India at that time. I was born in US, but I grew up in India. But what I saw was even though my parents were well off, and at that time there was no book like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, but it was the perfect Rich Dad, Poor Dad scenario because my parents uh, were very well educated, worked extremely hard, right? I mean, every single day I remember uh, till the date I came to the United States, I had never seen my dad in the weekdays. I would see him on Sunday, that's it, right? Because he was doing 25, 30 surgeries a week. Both my dad did those and my mom did those. They're extremely busy, hardworking, dedicated people. But in relation to the amount of work they put in, we didn't have the net assets in relation with that. And I saw my friend's parents, I had some friends and they were wealthy business owners. They were industrialists um, and they couldn't speak English. If you could speak English well, that was the level of, that meant you were really sophisticated if you were well-traveled, which my parents had all those things. And I always tried to figure out because they said, hey, good education means you do well. I'm like, well, clearly those people are doing better. And I was always that kid that questioned everything. I'm like, if having a PhD means you do well, why do people who have PhDs, we have cars, they don't, right? At that, this is what I'm talking about during that time in India. And what I realized was that business people did well. And I, my mom used to say, well, we're professionals, they're business people. I'm like, well, let's just become business people. You know, <laughs> why be a professional if business people do better? Uh, you know, and, I mean, Indian parents, like, you know, when they don't have an answer, they hit you on the head, go study, right? That, that's the resolution to, to all the problems. And for some reason, even as a kid, even though I grew up in a, I lacked for nothing, um, but I always felt that I was poor. I mean, I don't know why, maybe it was low self-esteem, maybe it was whatever. Um, and I always, always, always felt I was poor because even when I came to America, I'm like, why do people sit in first class, right? Why can't I sit there? And it used to bother me every time I'd get on a plane, I used to cry about it. I mean, literally I would have tears because I felt like a second class citizen. It's not that even today, it's not that I have to sit there, but I know I can, right? Uh, it was the funniest example. This something happened the other day. And so I flew down to uh, Miami um, and we went to the executive uh, airport 
We land there and I will never forget. I rented a car. I got it for $8 a day, right? And the lady over there at the executive airport, I mean, there's this multi-million dollar planes and all this stuff. And she's like, sir, do you know what this car is? I'm like, yeah, I know what this car is. You know, she's like, it doesn't even have unlock. You have to use the key. I'm like, yeah, I realized that, right? And my business partner, he's like, dude, this is so unlike you. I'm like, listen, man, it's not. This is kind of funny, right? You drive from home in a Rolls Royce, get in your own plane, fly down. And now I get to rent a car for $8. And it's kind of funny. At one time, I didn't get to, I had to. I don't know if that makes any sense. Oh, totally. Right? Totally. It was, it, was, it was a totally funny thing. We went to this great restaurant, right? Beautiful cars. And we go in this stupid little car. And it was funny because now I can laugh about it. Because at one time, I used to cry about it. I don't know if that makes any sense. Oh, totally. I hope uh, the audience understands that because, you know, it's one of these things where you, you're doing it by choice. It's right. not because of necessity, right. but you have more empowering feeling that, hey, this is cool. It's funny. Let's live it up. So, no, well, I get You I know, get, it's, it's, about op it's about, that's one thing if now I have realized is that it's options, man. Yes. All that yeah. it gives you is it gives you having, doing well, it gives you options. Even with this whole Corona, whatever, um, every, everybody felt down. I felt down, right? Because I'm like, what am I going to do? So I'm flying all over the country, going hiking, having, you know, doing stuff. But you're like, I'm not being productive. And you feel down, right? That's normal. That doesn't change if you have money, if you don't have, but at least I don't have to worry about the basics ever again, right? And that choice for a majority part of my life, I never had because um, when I left my parents, when I left India at 17 years old, my thing to them was one day you watch, I'm going to make so much money. It's not even going to make sense because I was always the kid who was, they tell me to go this way. I would go the opposite way. And I never drank, never did drugs, never did any of those things. But I was a rebel in terms of that. I wanted to live life on kind of my terms, right? Even in college, everybody went partying. I'm counting the amount of people in the bar to figure out how much money they're making. That's just how my brain worked. I couldn't help it. Um, you know, and so when I went to college or when I came to America, I came here to prove a point to my parents. I didn't come here to party. I didn't come here for anything. I came here because I wanted to be somebody. And I, what I felt was having financial freedom and having choices would put me in a place where I would feel better about myself. Maybe it came from low self-esteem. I don't know where it really came from. So. Talking to your 20-year-old self, rewinding the clock, okay? You've had a lot of experience as an agent, a fix and flipper, now investor, buy and hold. What would you say to yourself? Would you say do something different or go straight to doing what? You know, what I would say is you have to expose yourself to good people, right? That's one thing that what happens is a lot of times you don't have to be the sharpest cookie on the... Um, Christmas tree, um, but uh, you know you don't have to be the brightest bulb. But what happens is your bulb gets brighter if you hang around other people that are truly bright. And the hard thing today is at one time, at that time, the, the challenge was lack of information, right? So you had to go out and find people uh, that had done well. For me, it uh, happened to be uh, Mike, right? He was the first guy who said, oh my God, you can have this, you can achieve this. Hey, I'll never forget this. 
that he was making fun of people who were making four, five, six hundred thousand bucks. At that time, I thought, oh my God, what would you do with that? Right. right. <laughs> and I still remember him laughing about it. He says, if a hundred thousand bucks, man, you could barely buy a decent car. And some people got offended by that. Right. Yet he wasn't saying it that that's bad. What he was saying is if your potential is this, right, if your potential is to make a million, why are you undercutting yourself by 500,000? Right. And that mindset, that exposure is what I think probably is the most important thing rather than going doing real estate, doing anything. There are people that are succeeding at a level which is unbelievable in every industry. Right. The biggest thing is that you have to seek it out. And I remember something uh, that he said, he's like, you know, I listened to so many tapes, so many books, so many CDs. I used to listen to that Earl Nightingale, old, I still listen to it till today. It was called The Strangest Secret, over and over and over and over. And for me, what it did was it reaffirmed what I was thinking, even though I was depressed, right? And it gave me hope. I'm like, dude, if it's possible for somebody else, it's possible for me. And um, it's kind of funny because some of those things that he said at that time, it took me 20 years to understand, right? Mm -hmm. It literally took me 20 years to understand the simple, simple, simple things that he was saying. And I feel today, the biggest thing is that number one is exposure, but number two is exposure by people who have longevity in business. Meaning there's a lot of superstars today. I mean, every day you open a YouTube channel, you do for free, you'll have all these people talking about nice cars and all this stuff. Look what they got. Go back and look where they were five years ago and how long did it take them to build it? If they're one hit wonders, absolutely do not follow them, right? And that's the biggest problem today is not uh, lack of information, in fact, too much information. And so you have to pick one mentor that you truly research very, very well and then follow that train of profit. Do not go to 50 people because you'll never make it. I love it. Great advice. Great advice. So, Andrew, any last words, uh, anything you're promoting, uh, working on that you wanted to share to the audience? No, I mean, if you want to reach us, you can always uh, reach us at uh, andrewholmesrealestate.com. And the only thing I'll say, like for me, uh, real estate changed my life, right? It's the greatest equalizer that ever existed. And uh, obviously most people listening to this are gonna be either United States or Canada. Um, guys, that the time in history that we're in, it is a time to make a bloody fortune. Every time fortunes are really, really made, right? Uh, whenever fortunes are made are coming out of, from bad times to good times, millionaires become multimillionaires, multimillionaires become billionaires. Broke people either go backwards or broke people rise to a position of multimillionaires. Because if 2008 had not happened, it wouldn't have opened up that opportunity for someone like me to be able to amass a bunch of wealth. And that's exactly the precipice where we are at again today. So, but the key thing is that you have to learn a basic principle, which is if you take care of real estate for the first five years, real estate will take care of you for the rest of your life. Love it, Andrew. Love it. So exposure, hanging around the right people. There was so many golden nuggets. Just that last one there, guys. Guys, thanks so much, Andrew. This was incredible. 
I would play this over and over, guys. Subscribe to this channel. Listen to Andrew. Check him out. If you're in Chicago, you have a real estate investment club, right? But it's going to go online temporarily. Yeah, it's uh, so we're opening up Tampa. We're opening up a bunch of different markets. Okay. Um, and then uh, within the next few months, uh, we're going to open up probably a month or so something called 257cashflow.com. So we just are getting it online so that because around the country, you can do this. It doesn't have to be, I just happen to be based out of Chicago, but this, these principles are doable anywhere, um, which is in two years, you can basically amass five properties, pay them off within seven, and then you can do 10, 15, 20, whatever your goal may be. Perfect. Thanks again, Andrew. Definitely, man. I appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. Our company is not responsible for the success or failure of your business decisions relating to any information presented by our company or our company programs, products, and or services.